0: let's go ahead and get started we'll start with a word of prayer and i'll let uh let me see here dave you're you're sitting there right in front and center for me so could you open us in prayer tonight okay.
1: dear lord heavenly father thank you for this time we can get together thank you for uh dr snowberger and the lesson that he brings us each week pray that you keep us attentive and that we would learn uh truths about you and your from your word and from this teaching and uh Just thank you for each one that's here tonight. Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Okay, so we are in our discussion here tonight of uh, the doctrine of conversion broadly, uh, which, uh, uh, again, this umbrella term that subsumes repentance, faith, and confession in its scope. And we're going to be looking at these one by one. Uh, Repentance and faith, hopefully, we'll get through tonight. But before we do that, just a few... Uh, bits of uh, review here. We talked about uh, last week, most of the time, we talked about what we call definitive sanctification. Why did we call that? Why did we call it that? And what's, what's the distinctiveness of definitive sanctification as opposed to progressive or positional?
1: Well, the definitive is the root.
0: Okay, it's the root. Yeah, so it's the okay. fact that's, that's exactly Calvin. what Calvin called it. Is that it is a a seed of holiness, so a root of holiness. And you, you expand more on that. So, what 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 are what happens when we are definitively sanctified?
1: You're, you're set apart to God.
0: Okay, set apart in what way?
1: Well, you're not. You're no longer a slave to sin.
0: Yes, there you go. So, so, and 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 the reason there's actually some de- debate as to why we call it, why the term definitive is used. It's a term that was coined by John Murray back in the 1950s, um, and uh, he used this to. I, I think what he meant by it is not just that it happens at a definitive moment in time. It does that, but also because it it, it redefines you. So definitive, it actually redefines you. As a saint and not just a new position that you're in Christ, but actually it's a new experience being in Christ. And so and specifically, as you uh, as you pointed out there, Sharon, it's the the idea here uh, that we have been we're, we're no longer slaves to what we once were. So we've had that definitive breach with the crippling power of total depravity doesn't mean that sin's gone away. Of course, uh, but it does mean uh, that the back of sin has been broken. Uh, we no longer have to serve it. We're not totally depraved. There's not total inability. Depravity is still there. The remnants of sin. Uh, we talk about, and you know, even sort of gives gives us a picture of you know these these zombies sort of reaching up and grabbing for you, but they don't have power over you uh, because uh, they're they're dead effectively. And so you are able now, uh, to please God. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a breaking of the power of sin and enabling, uh, to righteousness. And so that's the idea here of definitive sanctification. It's not the flip side of justification so much as it is the flip side of regeneration. Okay. So we die to the old man regeneration, we spring to life. So it's that something dies, something lives and the death. Is definitive sanctification of the life we call regeneration. Okay. Any, uh, lingering questions that you had about that discussion we had last week? Well, if not, let's, let's move ahead there. We, we began last week by just, uh, uh talking about conversion generally, uh, the idea of turning, uh, this turn, this idea of turning will Will pop up several times tonight here. Uh, but that's really what we mean by converting. It's a it's a turning. Uh and it subsumes, I say here, repentance, faith, and confession in its scope. Um, and it's the initial expression of the conscious life of a regenerate person. Okay, so once you have been regenerated, you are a new man, you're the spirit man, and the disposition of that new man is one of. Faith and repentance. Uh, so sometimes the question is, is there a gap of time between the time God regenerates you and the time you exercise faith? And uh, we said, well, that's not really the question to ask because what happens when you are regenerated, a believer springs to life. Okay. So it's, it's not a question of acts of faith per se as it is somewhat as it is the disposition of change uh, of faith. You are a new creature, you are a believer, and you are a repenter. And so that's what springs to life, is a believer and a repenter. So the first, as I say here, the first conscious expression of regeneration life is that of a disposition of submission to Jesus Christ and a desire uh, to uh, to be conformed to his image. So repentance and faith are the immediate response of the regenerate person. Okay, And so we looked here a little bit at the idea of conversion we said it's not so much a uh, just a, a change of mind although it involves that which we're going to see here tonight but it's also here the the idea of a change of, of disposition okay and so that's what is that is what's is entailed in conversion and uh, as we're seeing a seamless progression here regeneration results in conversion. That is, it it results in a new nature, and that new nature is is expresses itself immediately in faith and repentance. Okay, so let's look at repentance then specifically tonight, and then we'll look at uh, faith in turn. They're very closely related, of course. Uh, in fact, they're sort of two sides of the same coin. Uh, we might say that uh, uh, repentance is turning away from sin, and faith is turning to God. I'm not sure that. To- quite that simple uh, because repentance is both a turning from and a turning to uh, faith is a turning from and a turning to but it does seem that perhaps that that's uh, in, in general what's happening you're repenting by turning away from what you were and faith is a turning to something else in submission uh, and, uh, and 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 faith and trust okay so repentance then is is that turning away but let's let's make sure we don't mistake what repentance is because i think there's a lot of confusion uh, perhaps uh some sometimes even in I, I mean we we find it true in roman catholic life but we also see protestant expressions too so don't imagine that uh, uh we're just going to be whipping you know beating up on the a roman catholic here tonight because i think there's 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 lingering uh misconceptions about repentance in uh, in uh protestant as well okay so repentance is firstly is not reformation it's not just a matter of trying harder or turning over a new leaf or making new resolutions to behave in a better way lots of people who are not christians you know engage in personal reformation all the time you know january 1st rolls around and we and we determine we're going to be better people well that's that's not repentance um and sometimes we even have you know, interest in, in, you know, cleaning ourselves up morally. And that can be true of a believer or an unbeliever. It Repentance does involve that movement towards reformation of behavior. Uh, but that is by no means the totality of what repentance is, nor is it contrition, sorrow, uh, repentance, as we're going to see again tonight, and particularly in this passage in second Corinthians seven, uh, Repentance involves contrition. There are always going to be sorrow associated with genuine repentance, but one can be sorry for sin without repenting, right? You know, it happens all the time, right? People are sorry they got caught. They're sorry about the consequences and they're even, you know, even mad at themselves, uh, for, for, uh, for doing something that was just wrong but that doesn't mean that they've repented because repentance is more than sorrow. It involves sorrow, but it's more than sorrow. Just like reformation, it involves reformation, but it's more than reformation. Okay, so Pharaoh admitted that he had sinned, but he didn't repent. Balaam admitted he had sinned, but didn't repent. Judas admitted he had sinned and felt so bad about it and went out and hanged himself, but he didn't repent. In fact, by virtue of the fact that he hanged himself. He proved that he didn't repent, but he was, he was beside himself. The rich young ruler, uh, re- remember he uh, came to Jesus and said, well, you know, what must I do to be saved? And imagining that because of his position and status and wealth, uh, that he was going to be able to have an easier time of things. And Jesus actually incises here that this man is, is actually got big problems, uh, bigger than just, uh. Uh, that uh, he, he he doesn't imagine all the all the problems that he has that he can perhaps buy his salvation and uh, God Jesus incises that he has a great trust in himself and his own wealth and so Jesus says you need to break that down you need to get rid of that and and he gives us a surprising answer you know, you know we we sort of expect Jesus to say well you know, call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. But instead, what does Jesus say? Well, go sell everything that you have, give to the, give to the poor, and then come back. And it's, it's actually something of a stunning uh, approach to evangelism. It's not one I've used uh, regularly, but Jesus uses it because he recognizes that the tension with this person is that he, you know, he trusts in the wrong thing. And so, Jesus says, get rid of that wrong thing so that you can see clearly to trust in Christ. Um, yeah, and this man walks away very sad, not because, you know, he's a sinner. He's very sad because he's extremely rich and he knows how much he's going to have to give away in order to satisfy uh, Jesus' expectation. Did I Did I hear a question there or was that? uh Okay. Uh, Hebrews 12, Esau found no place for repentance, even though he sought it with tears. Okay, So here's a man who was sorrowful and he was wanting the benefits that had come to his brother. And he was quite sorrowful and sought this uh, from God and was tearful about it. But it wasn't genuine in his repentance. He, he found no place for repentance in his life. And then Second Corinthians 7.10, which is one of our um, most important passages on repentance and forgiveness here, describes repentance as the sorrow that is in accordance with the will of God that produces a repentance, but a certain kind of repentance, a repentance without regret leading to salvation, rather than the sorrow of the world that produces death, Okay. So there's sorrow in both both senses. There's a, there's a sorrow that leads to life and there's a sorrow that leads to death. So repentance, uh, since that always leads to life, must involve more than simply sorrow. Sorrow is enough, not enough to define it. Nor is it a change of opinion only. Like we say here, repentance involves a change of mind, but it's not just a fleeting thing. It's a change of disposition. That is a change of who you, who I am nor is it penance and perhaps this is this is something that uh, uh, we struggle with sometimes uh, penance of course officially is a rite a, a sacrament uh, that is practiced in the roman catholic church in which works are assigned as the meritorious ground of pardon right okay so you go in make your confession to the priest uh he tallies up all the things you've done wrong and uh, weighs them and says, "Okay, in order for you to be forgiven, you've got to do this and that. You have to, you have to do so many nomena pod trees. You have to do so many Hail Marys. Um, maybe buy some candles. Uh, wh- whatever the case may be, you've got to do these things. And once you do these things, then you'll make amends. You, you'll make the payment necessary in order to receive the forgiveness uh, that Christ offers. Of course, that's." quite wrong as we as we understand but i think there's a lot of us who are, you know maybe have never had anything to do with roman catholicism think the same way you know I, you know i just i just did something terrible so i'm i'm going to have to make up for it somehow i'm going to have to i'm going to have to read my bible double time this morning in order to make up to make god happy with me after i sinned and so we we somehow assign ourselves uh uh penance in order to appease God. And that's not how repentance works. Of course, uh, uh, repentance and, uh, and, and appeals for forgiveness are met instantaneously by Christ. And that's the way it works. Right. Uh, and that's the way it's supposed to work within the life of the church as well, too. Right. So, uh, you, you don't, you don't hold it over, you know, remember, uh, love makes no record of wrongs. Uh, the idea is, you know, once, 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 Repentance is expressed and forgiveness is sought. It's extended without any strings attached to it. You don't, you don't say, okay, I'll forgive you if, uh, you say, I forgive you. And, uh, that's the way, and because we are to, supposed to forgive each other even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Okay. So that's what uh, forgiveness looks like. And that's what repentance looks like. And it's not, it, it's not penance. It is an appeal for forgiveness uh, that comes from a transformed heart. And so our definition formally, then, is a change of mind and disposition about three things, about God, about Christ, and about sin. Uh, Shed notes that repentance involves the dispositions, the will, and the inclination Erickson also talks about repentance as godly sorrow for one's sin together with a resolution to turn from it. So we've get, combined a couple of those elements from above. And uh, while repentance does include matters of mental judgment, a you know, change of mind, true repentance always includes a change of attitudes, inclinations, and at least in the intent to... Change behavior—a uh, resolution uh, to change one's behavior. You can't repent with no intention of changing. Okay, now just because you've repented doesn't mean that you're never going to do something again. But there ought to be, along with that repentance, the desire, the intention uh, to uh, to amend your ways, because that's all part of this package here, which is repentance. Okay. And I think it's important that we recognize this even when we're giving the gospel out. I think Jesus is a very good example to us of how we ought to include, weave in this idea of repentance into our gospel presentations. I think sometimes we, uh, we, we tend to concentrate on the word belief or have faith or say this prayer as as though that that's the totality of what one must do in order to be saved. But the fact is, uh, when someone is regenerated, it's not really anything one does per se. It's what he is. He has become something new. And so there has to be a realization by the one to whom you're giving the gospel that it's more than just trust in Christ. Certainly, that's a, a huge element of that. But there's also a realization that things are not going to be the way they were. And if, and if you, and you have, you probably haven't given the gospel completely if at least something of that does not come out in the gospel presentation. It's not just a matter of adding Jesus to what you're doing. It's actually changing. Okay. And so this idea of repentance or change, uh, I think probably should be woven in uh, to our gospel presentations which is exactly what Jesus did with the rich man right the, the one we just talked to it, it's not just you know the guy the guy comes up you know pontificating rich wealthy trusting in himself and Jesus doesn't say you know believe on Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and he might have said well that's easy says a prayer and walks away justified that's not how it worked uh, Jesus incised the problem that he had. And recognized that there needed to be a change in his character, his nature, his disposition, and 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 that was the need. Now, part of that new disposition is a, a heart of genuine trust and submission to God. So, faith is part of it. Uh, but he, but he, but he weaves in this idea of repentance as well, and I, I point there at the end of that, end of that uh, box there that all true repent, uh, true believers are also repenters. Seems a little odd. It's not a word that's really part of our vocabulary, but I, th- I think it could be and should be. Uh, we talk about people being believers. That seems to roll off our tongues pretty easily, uh, but we ought to be repenters as well. So it's, it's, and it's not just that we've repented once. But there were the kind of people that are are quick to acknowledge our own flaws, our weaknesses, our needs, and to and to resolve to change and 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 seek forgiveness and 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 change uh, the way we we live and conduct ourselves with each other because we're becoming like Christ, right? And so repentance is part of the package, and uh, I think it's something that we sort of need to weave in a little bit more, perhaps, in our gospel presentations. A lot of biblical data that uh, speaks to this negatively. Here uh, we see a, a forsaking, a, a change of mind, inclination, will, disposition towards sin. So negatively, the wicked forsakes his way; the unrighteous man forsakes his previous thoughts. Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven: "As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked." I would rather that the wicked man turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back, repent, repent, he says, from your evil days, evil ways. Job forty two. Uh, here's a here's a sort of a, a, a very visual expression here of repentance. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And as we're going to see it in 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 second in Corinthians seven. That really is the mark of genuine repentance. This, this, this this zeal to be different than what I am and what I was. Revelation 9. They did not repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexuality, their immorality, their thefts. That is, they didn't turn away from the sin. Okay? So, So, repentance involves negatively a turning, a forsaking, an abandoning of uh, the way I was once, okay? And then positively, it's a turning uh, towards God. So uh, Isaiah 55, we started that one, let the wicked forsake his way, let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts, verse 7, and let him return to the Lord. Let him turn to the Lord, and God will have compassion on him. Turn to our God, because he will abundantly pardon. So it's a so it's a change of mind, will, disposition about sin, but also about God, where once we were hostile towards God, now we embrace Him. And, and it's mutual. God has compassion upon us and pardons us. Joel 2, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Okay, so it's, it's not just a display of sorrow. But it's, but it's a, you know, I'm going, I, I must change. Return to the Lord because God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Acts 20 speaks of re, uh, repenting and turning to God and performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Okay. So the repentance is not so much the, ch- the, uh, the change itself as much as it is the resolution to change okay i resolve to be different in my behavior and in my thoughts my inclinations my loves and because of that out from this flows behavior conduct okay again i, I again we we tend to uh, i think sometimes in evangelicalism tend to spend a little bit too much time talking about justification the fact that we don't have to do anything to get in and yay, we're in, Jesus did it all and so everything's good now as though there is uh, nothing that, that we need to participate in. And here is something we participate. Conversion is a part of the salvation process in which we participate. Uh, we have to turn. We have to weep. We have to perform deeds appropriate to the to the conversion that has occurred within our hearts. And again, that that's something I think sometimes we, we tend to neglect a bit um, in, in our in our zeal to say it's it's all of Christ. We sometimes forget that not every aspect in this chain that we're looking at here is all of Christ, uh, because we are participants in aspects of our own salvation. And here's a part where we're a participant. Yes, I, I, undoubtedly. Uh, I mean, don't 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 mistake it here. God regenerates unilaterally, and he's the one who makes it happen. But once he makes something happen, it's not as though he does everything from this point forward unilaterally. He invites our participation, and repentance is part of that participation. So there's three elements here, I say here, of of repentance. We're going to do the same thing here with faith. There's an intellectual component. So this includes a recognition and acknowledgement of the heinousness of sin on one hand and a recognition and acknowledgements of God's sovereign lordship on the other. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Okay. That's repentance. I acknowledge my repentance. My sin is ever before me. I know it. I know I acknowledge it. It's part of, I, I, I get it. You must confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. I mean, there's, there's a propositional statement and it's not just a statement. You know, it's not as though you just mouth the words. You have to, you have to confess with your mouth. Yes. God is sovereign. He is the one who dictates the way I ought to live. I'm not measuring up right now. Okay. And yet I must acknowledge Jesus is Lord. And that's part of this package here of repenting changing my mind about God. God is no longer that evil boogeyman in the sky. He's now my sovereign, a benevolent sovereign, but a sovereign nonetheless. And so I must recognize him as my Lord. So the idea of the Lordship of Christ looms very large in the New Testament. Secondly, I say here there's an emotional aspect. Uh, Perhaps that word is is ill-chosen, uh, the affections, the affections are involved. Um, and, uh, I, I, the reason I, I don't like to use the word emotion because I think sometimes, uh, that communicates incorrectly what's going on in, uh, in uh, repentance. It's not as though you just have to, and, and some of you aren't uh, particularly expressive people, and that doesn't mean you can't repent, right? Okay, uh, it, 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 most, when I say emotion, I think for a lot of people means a, 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 a dramatic expression. That's not necessarily what we've got to have, but there has to be a change of the inclinations. I despise myself. I despise sin and I love Jesus Christ. And that means something's got to happen here. Okay. And, and some of you are, you know, you're you're more like Vulcans here. You, you, you don't have a lot of expressiveness about you. Uh, at the same time, that does not mean you can't repent. And so I want to make sure that we, we recognize that when I use that word here. Again, while sorrow doesn't guarantee repentance, we noted above, some people are sorrowful for the wrong reasons. They're selfish in their sorrow. True repentance always does involve sorrow, true shame about the odiousness of sins committed and genuine regret for having offended God. Okay, and so we uh, we've already looked at a couple of these expressions here. Uh, you know, Joel. You know, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Job. My eyes heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and I despise myself and uh, repent in dust and ashes. And Second Second Corinthians seven, perhaps one of the the uh, the, the longest sections here on what. Uh, on, on what does, uh, repentance, true repentance, looks like. Uh, God who, excuse me, am I, in there, am I in the wrong place here? Ah, yeah, he's talking about your deep sorrow, your longing for me, your ardent concern. Um, and uh, he goes on here in this passage, you became sorrowful as God intended you. You were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings a repentance that, uh, leads to, uh, to, to salvation, leaves no regret. And it said, and, 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 what does this look like? Well, you should see the, the godly sorrow, the earnestness, the eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness to see justice done. Yeah, so th- these are, these are the kinds of sentiments, these are the kinds of inclinations, uh, that should command you uh when you recognize particularly uh your your slipping back into sin okay and and hopefully uh, you have those things in fact as we're going to see later here in in the uh, in the doctrine of assurance those are the kinds of things that grant assurance okay because you can do all kinds of things to make other people believe that you're a believer but you can't deceive yourself quite as easily you can deceive yourself but You know whether there's genuine inclinations of the, the, those words, do they, do they define you when you sin? Uh, or is sin rather, you know, a matter of fact thing? Shouldn't be. And genuine repentance is not. Okay? And then there's a volitional aspect. It involves the will. True repentance always involves determination to abandon sin and surrender to the lordship of Christ. Now, like I say, repentance doesn't consist of good works, but it always issues in good works, right? Same thing is going to be true of faith, right? You you don't have to work in order to earn your salvation. That's not what faith is, earning your salvation. But true faith, as we're going to see here, always issues forth in faith or else it's not genuine faith. Okay, so bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Jesus uh, uh Yes, Jesus says Acts twenty six twenty. You must repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So there are certain deeds and works that attach themselves to repentance. The works are not the the repentance. That's that's again that's the the error of penance that the works comprise my repentance and and earned my forgiveness. No, uh, repentance meets with immediate forgiveness. Nonetheless, works do ensue; they always follow. And if there are no, if there is no reformation at all, again, there's a question here as to whether uh, the repentance was genuine. So, where does repentance come from? Well, it's easy to imagine. Well, I just, I just dig deep, dig down, deep and I, I produce it. Um. And uh, there's a part of which you say, okay, yes, it is a human activity. I'm a participant in my repentance. But the source of the activity ultimately is God. Okay, Uh, Our our new nature is given to us by God. And with it comes this new disposition. I need to exercise the disposition. But the disposition itself has come to me supernaturally from the hand of God. And uh, we find this reflected here in a number of texts. Uh, Zechariah is a prophecy about the conversion of Israel, right? I will pour out upon the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Okay. Actually, the word repentance isn't there, but it's, you know, it's, it's lingering or right? it's, it's right under the surface. A spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look upon me with new eyes, right? They will look upon me at whom they have pierced and will mourn. As one who mourns for an only son and weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over the firstborn. Of course, the illest, this comes from uh, it's a it's a point in history if you if you uh, follow Zechariah here. This is this is the this is the climax of the great tribulation uh, when the nations are converging upon Israel, intent on wiping them out. And they seem to be clustered here in Jerusalem, and, on, and 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 perhaps here out on the on the Mount of Olives. And it looks as though this is finally it for the nation of Israel. The anti-Semites are finally going to win and just completely wipe off this 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 this, this group of people off the face of the earth. And what happens? Jesus comes at the, at the last moment. He's going to appear on the Mount of Olives, split it in two, and with a with a with a with a sword for his tongue, and it'll just eliminate all of Israel's uh, uh enemies. And at a moment, all of them are going to look upon him whom they were responsible for killing, and they're going to look at him with new eyes. And those new eyes, those eyes to see, those ears to hear, and the heart to respond. This is repentance. And it comes to them. From God Himself. God Himself grants it to them in the form of, uh, a, a universal, uh, regenerating impulse at that, at that moment in history. Acts 5, God, He is the one, Jesus is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. And with it then, forgiveness of sins. Acts 11, here's the uh, context where, uh, Cornelius has been, uh, converted, uh, he, uh, he's, uh, he's welcomed by Peter, uh, into the church, uh, because, you know, he and his family, uh, uh, you know, spoke in tongues apparently, uh, like the, like the early church did in, in Acts chapter two. And when Peter comes back to Jerusalem and he's explaining to them, uh, you know, his rationale for including a Gentile in the church has never been done before. And, uh, the people, as you can imagine, are a little bit skeptical. Never really included Gentiles before. They've always been on the Alps. Uh, but, but, uh, Peter explains, you know, the dream he has, you know, with the sheep, the animals going up and down and, and the, uh, the speaking in tongues that Cornelius did and their expression of faith and repentance. And what's the response here in Acts 11? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God must have granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So it's it's from the hand of God. And then Second Timothy 2 uh, represents something of a prayer that we have when we evangelize, right? Perhaps God will grant them knowledge, uh, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And that's what we pray every time we evangelize because, you know, it's not our... It's not our skill in evangelism that creates converts. It's, it's the if perhaps that God will grant repentance because that's the only way it's going to happen. If God grants this new life, this new disposition that issues forth in words and then deeds appropriate to repentance, okay? So that's repentance. Any questions on that before we turn to the second aspect of conversion, which is faith?
1: A question, not yeah. so much on pen, penance, but if we wrong someone, isn't making them an attempt to make them whole part of repentance as well? Like if we, well, the biblical standards, like if we stole something is to pay that back.
0: True. Yeah, I I I I think you know someone who is who is genuinely repentant will want to do that. I mean, he's if those sentiments that we just read about Second Peter, Second Corinthians, chapter seven, this this eagerness, right, to eagerness to clear yourselves, a readiness to seek justice. So so all of that would be included in repentance. So repentance is more than just saying sorry. Okay. Uh, and 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 I think that's very important for us because um and you know as a, as a you know as you engage in pastoral counseling and things of that nature, you recognize that some repentance is just just that hey, sorry, man, you got sorry, you gotta forgive me not, well, you haven't repented, forgiveness is a response to repentance, and while repentance may not always be all that it should be. It, it has to include those elements. Uh, we all know that we sin frequently, oftentimes more than once, committing the same sin over and again. That's why we have to forgive each other seventy times seven times. At the same time, a genuine repentance is more than just mouthing the words "sorry, man, sorry, man." It's 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 all of those things, and we should we should be seeking those things in genuine repentance. So yes, you're right. It is it is making a person whole and making making the situation right, uh, but you know as a as a believer, you know sometimes you get into a situation where things aren't easily made right. You know maybe he stole and he doesn't have anything left to give. Remember poor uh, Philemon, right? You know that, that that whole situation with Onesimus stole money from Philemon, spent it probably in in Rome. He's got nothing left. He's he's a runaway slave. He's stolen money. And what does what does uh, Paul say? You know, this guy he has an eagerness for justice, but you know, there's just no way he, he can't. And he says, Philemon, you got to be the bigger man here. You're you're the believer. You're the you're the sturdy, mature believer here. You've got to be the bigger man here and extend forgiveness. And 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 acknowledge the intent, uh, even though the action may not be able to follow. He didn't have. He doesn't have the means to to make things right in an absolute sense. I don't know if that helps.
1: Yeah, I think I sort of think of when you're a kid, your mom might say, or your dad, tell your brother you're sorry. And each of you said, "I'm sorry," but there's no heartfelt sorry. I mean, it's not. You're just yeah. doing it because mom said so, or dad said so. Yeah. And that, and that's,
0: and that's a hard thing because you, you you're trying to, uh, you're, you're trying to get someone to repent and they may not have a, a heart inclined that way. You know, they they might not be regenerate. So it's really hard to genuinely repent if you have no repentance. I mean, that's, that's, that's the standard. That's the expectation. Uh, but there's a realization that uh, you know an unregenerate person can't repent in the truest sense of the word and in such cases the best you can do perhaps is to go through the motions but you know that's yeah it's you know that's the same 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 thing is true whenever you know you you're speeding down the road you get caught and you have to go into that little room and you have to bring your checkbook and you and you write it out and give it to them and you don't have to do that with the right heart attitude. You don't have to repent. That's not one of the requirements, right? <laughs> you just have to pay you just have to you just have to pay. Pay up, you know, pay the fine. Um but uh but the expectation, the whole expectation from God is one of repentance. And uh, like you say, it's something that can't always be secured. It's a work of God. Okay? Let's move then to saving faith, and I think we can go a little bit quicker through that because this, because there's a lot of overlap here with what we've done. So what is saving faith? Well, it's a knowledge of, assent to, unreserved trust in, the completed work of Christ as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And that's a, a definition I pulled out of B.B. Warfield. So we've got the same elements that we saw in repentance in faith. Okay, the element of faith we say here, there's an intellectual aspect. In order to exercise faith, there has to be an object of that faith. There has to be a conscious propositional expression of that faith. So there has to be some apprehension of the truth. So faith has a cognitive aspect that's grounded in knowing certain things about God. Faith doesn't operate in a vacuum. You know, sometimes you See those t-shirts, right? So just have faith. Well, in what? You know, that, that's perhaps the question I have. And most people, if you would happen to ask them that, they're like, well, it's kind of, it's kind of like uh, Thanksgiving coming up here in a couple of weeks. You know, just be thankful. Just be grateful. Grateful to whom? <laughs> you, you don't, you, it's, it's just not an attitude of, of graciousness or gratefulness. It, You know, Thanksgiving is directed at someone for something. And the same thing is true of faith. It's directed at someone for something. And so there actually has to be some intellectual content to it in order for it to be genuine. It's not just a, a, a psychological feeling. Uh, you know, Wes, uh, what, what, is, what was uh, Schleiermacher's uh, uh, definition of religion, that feeling of ultimate dependency? Well, It's, it's more than that. It's more than just a feeling. It's, it's a, it's a knowledge of certain facts. So in order to have genuine faith, you actually have to have some pieces of the puzzle in place. You need to know who God is. You need to know who Jesus is. You need to know what he did. You need to know why he did it and what he's saving you from. Okay. So there has to be this intellectual element here. Uh, so this, uh, this idea of faith as, as just sort of a feeling, uh, doesn't really work here. Uh, you can't have an ignorant Faith, it's grounded, first of all, in the facts of the gospel. And in fact, we see that right Romans 10. How can they believe? How can they exercise faith? And I, just sort of a point here, when you see the word believe and the word faith, they're the same root. One's just a noun and one's a verb form. To have faith is to believe. Uh To, uh, to believe is to have faith. Okay, so the, you're talking about the same thing. So how will they have faith if they've never heard of him? Okay. It's not just a feeling of gratitude or a feeling of ultimate dependency. It is actually belief in something one has heard. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. And so there are some factors that you need to know in order to be genuinely saved. You need to know that God exists as the sovereign of the universe. He's the creator. And therefore you're beholden to it. You've got obligations to him. Jesus Christ is savior and Lord. He's the one who, uh, who, you know, makes it possible for you to acknowledge his sovereignty and takes away the sin problem that you have. The scripture testimony is true. You need, you need to believe that the Bible is telling the truth about what God is. We need to say that Jesus is God. If you don't, First John says, you don't believe. You, you might think you believe, but it's, you don't really believe. God sent his Christ, this Christ, and raised him from the dead as, as a substitution for sin. These are things that, that must be known and understood, expressed, uh, in order for genuine faith to occur. Okay? And so, can't ever get away from the content of the gospel. It's not just a mere submission to Christ. It is actual, actually an acknowledgement and embrace of certain, you know, cognitive truths. But it's more than just knowing facts because we know that the Satan and his angels believe these things and what? They tremble. Okay. Because the second aspect of faith is missing, right? There's an affectual aspect. There's an inclination, an assent, an affirmation of the truth. So it's not just a realization of those truths or even an acknowledgement of those truths, but it's an embrace of those truths, a submission to those truths, okay? Uh, so that's the affectual, the affectual, the emotional. Again, again emotion is probably the wrong thing. It's not as though you have to just get excited when you get saved, uh, but rather there has to be an inclination of the heart, towards god and away from sin again so the apprehension of truth is essential to salvation but never in isolation from assent um, and we find that there are some people who acknowledge james 2 is that 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 statement here about the the demons they acknowledge certain things about that are true about god it doesn't save them the truth apprehended by the mind must be welcomed as truth and is applicable to the need of the individual. So to profess something is true, yet simultaneously exempt oneself from that truth is to deny the truth. And that's not faith. Okay. So it's not just an acknowledgement of facts, but it's a submission to the truth that's there. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Okay. So it's not just an acknowledgement. But an assurance, and so this this embrace here. Uh, the legion passages in scripture that list a person as the object of faith are also proof of the aspect of assent. I believe in Christ. Well, what do you mean? I thought you're supposed to believe facts about Christ. But well, the that's why you believe in Christ. You 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 actually embrace the truth that is embodied in Christ. It's not just Facts about Jesus. It is it is it is an embrace of Jesus Himself. Uh, a submission to Him uh, that is necessary to have genuine faith. So ordinarily, I say here, belief has to have a propositional object. I believe that water boils at two twelve, or I believe that the sky is blue. But by reducing the object of faith to a person, I believe God. I believe the Bible. The speaker assents to the sovereignty or authority of that which is believed. Okay, So it's not just, I believe stuff about Jesus. I believe Jesus. It's a trust in him as a person, his character, his nature, his promises. Which means then that there is a volitional aspect. Uh, We need to appropriate uh, the truth that we've expressed here. So faith not only acknowledges truth and affirms truth, It also acts upon that truth. Uh, This goes beyond the mere statement of words to activity. And as we're going to see, as we work through perseverance here, the litmus test for faith is always obedience. Now, this can get confusing, right? Because we don't want to say that obedience is necessary in order for one to go to heaven, right? But... Obedience and works are necessary of the person who has believed. This is how one knows that genuine faith has been expressed. So the works don't earn your salvation in any sense. At the same time, if you have a faith without works, as James says, what? It's, it's dead. It, it, it's, it's fake. It's not real. It's fake news, right? And so we find a number of texts here that uh, uh that express this point here. Uh, Romans 10.10, 10, with a heart the person believes, resulting in righteousness. John 1.12, as many as received him by faith, they welcomed him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, those who believe on his name. Okay, and so the idea here is of welcoming and uh, and expressing. And that's why we talk about confession as being a, a, a necessary element of faith. okay you know sometimes we ask okay when does somebody get saved when they you know when they raise their hand in the back of the room to come, or when they come in forward or when they talk to the deacon at the front of the church and you say well there's probably a sense in which he you know faith may have been expressed while he was sitting back there in the pew listening to the uh, to the sermon right at the same time if that does not issue forth in confession an expression here of one's faith uh then then we really don't have any evidence that faith has occurred and so uh we, we we find here that one must confess with his mouth that Jesus is lord that's 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 the expression of a faithful heart it's how anybody can know uh that faith has occurred john 4:14 4, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst again this idea of imbibing and participating the one who comes to me, I won't cast out. Okay, uh, so coming implies participation. There has to be an action. Doesn't, it doesn't necessarily to be a, a physical action, walking the aisle, but there has to be a coming. Take my yoke upon you, submit. That's what taking a yoke is, right? He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. In fact, it's rather interesting to note that the uh, uh, that the, uh, the 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 word obey comes from the same root as to believe. Because belief always expresses itself in obedience. Okay? So what is the object of saving faith? Well, one's faith is no stronger than its object. Okay, So the prayer of faith is only efficient as the faithworthiness of its content. Person who can't express in his own words the content of his faith has not exercised faith, and that's why it is important uh, that the person expresses faith, not just "Yeah, I've done that." No, no, no express it. T- tell me what happened. And and a person who has believed in Christ should be eager to do so. So faith first affirms that the Bible is true. First Thessalonians two thirteen. How did how did Paul know that these people were believers? Well, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. You know, there's the faith statement. You accepted it not as the word of men before what it really is, the word of God, which performs a work in you who believe. Okay, there, there again is this expression here that faith, faith always issues forth in works. And how did Paul know it was genuine faith? They accepted it for what it was, the word of God. It affirms that God... Word is true, submits to it, and and this issues forth in works. First uh, John 5. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his, t- his son. You gotta believe what God says. And so so someone who comes to A point of faith and said, yeah, I don't know if I believe that Bible thing. You know, you've got some things going here for you, but I'm not sure I, no, 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 back, back up, back, back the wagon up here. Because, because you have not exercised faith if you don't believe who God is and what He said in His Word. It also affirms the historical facts about Jesus Christ. Many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of disciples, John 20 says, Which are not written in the book, but these have been written so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so Jesus is the Christ as manifested by his sinless life and the miraculous verification of his person. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. You gotta believe the facts of the, and those are hard things to say in a modernist context because It's hard to believe that people rise from the dead. But you have to in order to be a Christian. First Corinthians 15, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received. Okay, There's the faith element here. In which you stand, by which you are saved. If you hold fast these words, which I preached to you. Because if you don't, you believed in vain. You didn't really believe. What is what do you need to what do you need to believe? Well, these things of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised a day, the third day, according to the scriptures. Synopsis, very narrow synopsis, but a good synopsis here of what the gospel is. You have to believe those facts. If you disbelieve those facts, you cannot be a Christian. And then faith also affirms the person's capabilities and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord. Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. One last point here, and we're going to go a couple minutes over. But uh, I gave, I, yeah, I, I gave you a few minutes last week, so you, I'll, I'll, I'll take them back this week. Here, uh, origin of saving faith is the same as that of repentance. Mankind, as we say here, believers participate in faith, uh, but that's not that there has to be a warrant here. There has to be a source of that faith. And we should not imagine that faith in Jesus Christ is the same as faith in a light switch or a chair or a staircase, right? Uh, Faith is not simply the transfer of our native trust that things are going to happen in this life and transfer them to Jesus Christ. There's a fundamental difference between trusting in electricity and trusting in Christ. Um, so it's not a one-for-one one correspondence, and the reason this is true is because of these things. Saving faith doesn't originate in sense experience. Okay, that—that's that, why you—you you know, you—why do you believe that the light switch is going to work? Well, because it always has. Because perhaps you've got a little bit of a sense of of how electricity works, and you know how the wires are set up, uh, and so. All these things come come to you, and you've come, they come together to say, "Okay, I think the light switch is going to work tonight." Um, and the, and the warrant you have is your knowledge of electricity, but that's not where faith comes from in Jesus Christ. So so faith in Christ is of, of a fundamentally different quality than faith in the light switch. Okay, flesh and blood does not reveal what you need to know in order to be saved. My Father who is in heaven gives it to you. And we walk by faith, not by sight. Okay, so sight does not contribute to our faith. Even the great miracles of Christ that are designed to affirm his person and message can't compel faith. They might compel acknowledgement of who he is, but not faith. Okay, this is something that comes to us from God himself. God must give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and heart to believe. Does not invest, originate in historical investigation. He's uh, faced with historical facts in and, and Matthew 18. The enemies of the cross circulated an ingenious theory about the uh, historical data. You know, Agrippa, same thing. He knew the facts of Christ's ministry. That he knows about the the death of Christ. He knows the mystery swirling around the fact that his body is gone. And yet he doesn't believe. He's unmoved. Saving faith does not originate in human reason. You know, the world through its wisdom cannot come to know God. You know, through our wisdom we can come to trust a light switch, but we can't through our own wisdom come to trust Christ. So my message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And he goes then on then into a discussion here of what happens when one becomes a spirit man, when he's regenerated. So saving faith ultimately, then, is a gift from God. It's not a matter of human transfer of fiduciary objects. I'm not going to trust in my money anymore. I'm going to trust in God. Faith is imparted to man by the Holy Spirit of God through the act of regeneration, just as repentance is. Man's will is made capable of the free and voluntary response to the gospel message. So God opened the door of faith to the Gentile. Faith is in the power of God. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the spirit. Famous one here, Ephesians two, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So you can't boast of, of what you've done to you. It has been granted for Christ's sake. Not only your faith, your belief, but also the suffering that ensues. God is at work in you, both to will and to effect his good pleasure. So I think it wrapped up there is faith. And then uh, last passage there, Hebrews 12 two, Christ is the author and finisher. But here the point here is he's the author of our faith. Okay, so so faith in many ways, uh, mirrors and parallels the idea of repentance, but it does carry with it a little bit more uh, a, a little bit of a, some different nuances here than repentance. Okay. Well, that's uh that'll, that'll be a night for us and uh, we will see you next week. Correct. One more. Yeah. One more week before Thanksgiving. So uh, we'll see you next Thursday and uh, we'll uh, talk about this grand discussion, this grand topic of justification. So hope you're looking forward to that. Okay. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming through.